Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, May 18th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Okay, so, um, you know, we've been a little remiss uh, having uh, uh, having blown the uh, the klaxon uh, of, of, of danger uh, in mid-April about um, the collapse in vaccination numbers after the Johnson & Johnson pause, which was real and which the bizarre effort to uh, cover up the uh, CDC's uh, and if whoever who I can't now which which alphabet agencies were responsible for the pause um you know this effort to kind of like say it was fine that they did it obviously it was a disaster and all of that but you know we are back well over 2 million vaccinations a day i'm looking at you know one of these dashboards um we are at 38% of the population in the united states fully vaccinated 124 million people 275 million doses having been given um and uh, and of course, twelve to fifteen year olds are now you know now in the pipeline. Also, uh, after the after this bad couple of weeks, things uh, are are heading in that direction. And I don't know what to say except that if you just read the tea leaves and look at the numbers and everything like that, you know, um, we are seeing exactly what we would want to see, which is that it, it's not exactly like numbers are dropping off a cliff, but death rates appear to be dropping off a cliff. We've now gone, I think we're now down 30% in general over two weeks. I think we're at around 500 or 600 a day. And the case rates are, you know, incredibly way down. The positivity rates in places that used to have very high rates like New York are are just dead. Texas, no, no, no deaths yesterday. Los Angeles County, I don't think has had deaths, uh, has had a death in a week. Um, and so, you know, this is all good. This is all really good. But John, I don't think we've been remiss because, uh, well, I think we've been remiss and not noting that, that, that which we said had gone down has now gone up again. That's all. Oh, fine. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was just gonna say, vaccinations recovered a bit after um, the guidance changed twice. Uh, First, when the CDC said you can wear your masks, you don't have to wear masks outdoors. And then when they said no one who is vaccinated needs to wear a mask indoors or outdoors. But but the vaccines are still low, by the way. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at a chart right now and there was a brief recovery in the downslide in, in mid-May, but right now the average seven-day rolling average of daily administered doses is as low as it's been since March 1st, but, which is no, necessarily but, but the world, over, a world-ending still... catastrophe because so many people are now vaccinated. Right, but wait, what is, the, what, what, is the, what is the number? The average? The rolling average yeah. is 1.8 million. Okay, I'm just saying, remember there were days when it was like under 900,000? I mean, there, there, we, there was really a a trough like where, where people were like, Ooh, these things are scary. And, uh, and then, and then rational things began to happen. Right. Um, uh, the, the thing that we've been saying and that all rational people have been saying over the last couple of months, which is you have to provide incentives. You have to provide the incentive that if you're vaccinated, you can, you can go about your life the right way. Not only have they been doing that, but of course, you know, Mike DeWine in Ohio, the governor uh, did this, um, made it a lottery, you know, they're going to give out a million dollars every week to some lucky vaccinated person. Um, all that kind of stuff that really did have a positive effect. It's very, it's very clear. And then we have this bizarre sociological problem, which is that there, there are two populations of people who, who are not getting vaccinated on, on mass. Uh, one of them, it's this general line that it's, it's, it's red States, right? Which is to say more rural people who really have much less to, fear from because they're not in fact spending a lot of time indoors with a lot of people uh in 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 comparable situations um but they are of course being tasked with being skeptics about the vaccine because they're idiot trump voters who were so terrible about everything and QAnon and they raid the capitol building and they and they want to destroy the country and then we have 
you know, African Americans and Hispanics, poor, uh, you know, uh, those populations, um, and they of course need to be um, coddled, understood, and 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 treated as though somehow something has been done unfairly to them to keep them from not being vaccinated at the levels that we were at. We talked about this yesterday with that quote about how they've received less of the vaccine. They've received it into their persons, you know, as though, as though it's been denied to them. Yeah. Christine flagged an item, which I think is, is going to be the new talking point and it won't be very long before this catches on, which is that, you know, a headlong rush towards normalcy will imperil minorities Black Americans in particular, who are reluctant to get this vaccine. I mean, the way they talk about Republicans who are supposedly uh, vaccine hesitant is just dripping with contempt. I'm going to give you one example in March where Stephen Colbert was testing out, you know, had a monologue about how a third of Republicans say they won't be vaccinated. So he started testing out messages that they might be responsive to. For example, quote, how do we convince you that you want it? Would it feel safer if the vaccine was administered by an AR-15? Unquote. Can you even imagine what would happen if we talked about Black Americans like that? Well, and so we talk about Black Americans with exquisite, con- you know, uh, condescension. Exquisite, right, like, paternalistic condescension. They aren't receiving enough of the vaccine. As though the point, what they're supposed to do is sit in their apartment and then have and Christine said people were trying to do this, right? Yes, in DC they actually were door, going door to door trying to get to, to get people to get vaccinated. Also, like, where, where, why are they not holding accountable leaders in the Black community at the same at the same rate that they're holding accountable, you know, Donald Trump and anyone Trumpy like about the his holdouts for vaccination? There are plenty of Black celebrities and Black leaders who could be just constantly, constantly messaging this, talking well, about so- it. Instead, we have we have actually a lot of celebrity. Uh, uh, African-American skeptics of vaccination, and there seem to be no cultural repercussions for those folks. Some. I mean, we've, to be fair, we've seen plenty of more responsible uh, African-American leaders, up to and including the former president of the United States. Yes, that was the best to, to acclimate, the, you know, this population to to the, the safety and necessity of being vaccinated. The problem is, is that these populations aren't reachable by these voices. Yeah. Just like Republican voters aren't listening, aren't, aren't tuning into cable news aren't listening to us, you know, they they have their own media eco chambers. Okay. But you know, honest to God, there is no way that anybody in this country isn't aware that there's a vaccination program and that it's, you know, it's all over the place and you can go or you cannot go. Like you, you, there is no, no one's like, what really huh. there's vaccines. Like I, that is not possible. Like that, 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 even that level of, you know, uh, of of isolation is not even remotely conceivably the case. But the the difference here is that the the condescension and um, you know vitriol directed at like the the, the MAGA hat wearing people who refuse vaccination isn't going to have a lot of effect on anyone else. Like they're getting ridiculed. But the people the the condescension that's directed particularly at the minority communities in urban areas that aren't getting vaccinated that's going to have a that that is still having an effect on things like school reopenings, businesses reopening, uh, all of the all of the things that need the, the second order effects of vaccination that we need to see happen in the places that have held out the longest for lockdowns and shutdowns. And the fact that that those whims are being catered to by political leaders is going to have continue to have effect throughout the summer and into the fall when it comes to those institutions being able to function again. Okay. So uh, look, the central point here is that, uh, is that we are, on our way out of the pandemic. And there are people who are clinging to the pandemic. This is not something that I think anybody really thought would be the case, but a a year of this, you know, emotional, political, economic distortion is going to have longer range, you know, uh, distortion effects. And, um, and we have this bizarre media phenomenon of story after story, after story of sympathetic portraits of people who are afraid to move on. Um, Washington Times, Washington Post, New York Times, networks, 
you know, people who are triple masking to go to the supermarket say they're going to do it for five years. The, you know, people who have kind of enjoyed it because they have social anxiety and they don't want to hug. There was a story in the Washington Post over the weekend about people who are now afraid because people are going to try to hug them and they really enjoyed the pandemic because no one tried to hug them. I know people walk around hugging people like without their permission. Is that really a thing? I, I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not, not that aware of it. And, and this kind of the sympathy that is provided again, cultural sympathy. It's like, it's like, imagine cultural sympathy, not that this is a perfect analogy, but like for smokers, it's like smokers, it's really hard for them. You know, they really need to have a cigarette. And, and, and I think we really need to understand that, you know, things are changing for them that it's not, you know, you can't smoke in your office and you can't smoke in front of your building. I mean, you know, says, says, you know, Phil smoker, I just don't know what to do anymore because, you know, I feel, I feel anxious and upset when I can't smoke my cigarette. Is there anybody that would ever publish an article like that? But here we have we here we have this sympathy, elite sympathy being expressed to people who have an entirely different uh, way of thinking, for, rationally, normally about this. From today's New York Daily News, it's an article. Uh, don't throw out that mask yet. Masks should remain with us, becoming part of our everyday lives, even as the COVID nineteen pandemic science willing, even as the COVID. COVID-19 pandemic, science willing, subsides. We should never fully return to our maskless society where only healthcare providers donned a mask because judicious use of masks will continue to save lives. So it'd be one thing if that was just a crank, right? You know, expressing his opinion about why we need to all live in bubbles for the rest of our lives. But it's another when you get, as John said, all these sympathetic portraits of people on the street who, who say they're following the science by deliberately ignoring public health officials. I mean, now they, following the science has just become a mantra to describe fundamentally neurotic, paranoid behavior. Um, and in a healthy society, a healthy media culture, we would castigate those people for behaving well, in ways that are antisocial, unreasonable, illogical, and fundamentally detrimental to the greater civic good, right. which is the promotion of of economic prosperity, of mental health, of physical health. You want to talk about physical safety? We can talk about crime rates. All of this is related to the Okay, pandemic. but you don't you don't have to castigate them. You just don't have to lionize them. I mean, it's an interesting phenomenon, okay? Everybody knows people like this. Everybody lives with them. Um, you know, and every couple of years there's an outbreak of a certain type of health paranoia that um people find themselves obliged or compelled to express sympathy toward until the science comes out and people say, no, no, you're, you're crazy. You know, these people who say they have autoimmune, their, their immune systems are compromised and they can't go outside. Right. Which is a, which is a, a form of severe anxious agoraphobia. There was an entire class of people in the early nineties who announced that they had these conditions that meant that they had to stay indoors uh, because everything made them allergic and everything compromised their immune systems. And they're back because how often did we hear, have we heard in the last year, and by the way, in the last couple of months, about the immunocompromised? Now, we know that there are people who are immunocompromised, right? Anybody who is getting chemotherapy is immunocompromised. Anybody who is, you know, anybody who has certain types of very specific autoimmune disorders is more. Uh, is more readily uh, infected from things than other people. But judging from my own unscientific extrapolations, I would say that you would now believe that 25% of the population in the United States is immunocompromised. And that is insane. That is it's an like insanity. like gluten-free, gluten intolerance. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> we are, and we are, you know, it's like, who is the first lactose intolerant person? Like, who is patient zero? We grew up, we never knew a single person who was lactose intolerant. Now, Half the country is lactose intolerant. Fine, whatever. It's fine if you want to believe it. The notion that we're supposed to, that much of how we think about these things is supposed to revolve around 
making comfortable people who are by definition impossible to make comfortable. Well, and I think it's also important to note, because this goes back to something we started talking about very early on after the very first lockdowns, which are the the, the haves and the have-nots when it comes to the kind of job that you that allows for locked, a seamless lockdown where you continue to get a pay, steady paycheck and do your work and feel safe in your home versus people who didn't have that option. And I feel like now a lot of the a lot of these, you know, stories profiling the anxious who still want to triple mask all day, um, among whom, unfortunately, we, we have to include some elected officials who are refusing to give up the mask. Um, these are elites, by and large, these are elite people who have the kind of jobs that will continue to give them a paycheck if they continue to triple mask when they leave their houses, and they can actually largely do from their homes. That again, the, the, the kind of cultural divide is one thing, but there's also a real class divide here. And that it's not a good thing in an already politically polarized nation to continue to emphasize in the mainstream media that these are the true heroes and these are the true victims. You know, these are the people we really need to focus all of our time and attention on. I don't think that's true. Worse, there is this idea abroad that somehow fully vaccinated people need to be wary of the unvaccinated when it's entirely un- inverse. The fully vaccinated people don't have to bother with this sort of thing because your risk is minuscule and the likelihood that you will catch this infection and be hospitalized is, is negligible. But maybe you might catch the infection and, and spread it. It's the, the risk is for unvaccinated people. But there right. is and we talked about this last week. I think it was Rachel Maddow who expressed, I think, a pretty a sincere um, neurosis that is probably shared by many people that we're surrounded by threats and enemies and right. that these other people are, are secretly desirous of our harm. Look, you know, I, I was thinking about this in relation to Michelle Goldberg, the columnist for the New York Times, whom I revile and people know I revile and all of that. But she said this thing a couple of months ago about how she had gone insane, that she, she believed that she had gone, that the, that the, that the coronavirus, the year virus had made her crazy. Now, this is interesting because um, if, in fact, I'm not saying she was offering a clinical diagnosis, though it, it sounded pretty close, what was she doing writing about it? Like what, what, what she was somebody who, who had uh, been driven to an extreme emotional reaction to the circumstances and conditions of the last year her testimony, her criticism, her writing, all of that, she was fundamentally telling us was unreliable and driven by irrational anxiety, fear, and and in fact, uh, an unstable uh, perspective. That was her saying it, not me. And yet that is supposed to be part of the general conversation about how we should be making public policy in relation to the virus. And this gets to the next point that I want to bring up, which is kids. So I looked again at the death, at the death numbers. We're now approaching 600,000. We remain at 277 deaths between the ages of zero and 18 in the United States. And by the way, under 12, the ages under which, you know, uh, the, the, now 12 to 15 can be vaccinated, something like 62 in, the, in 14 months, 15 months, 16 months, 62. When are we letting them take their masks off? Never. Never. Right. What is that about? We now have an abusive public policy as death toll, as the death rate declines and all this there was there was a time when this question was we didn't really understand transmissions we didn't understand whether you could carry it but not get sick we didn't understand if kids were going to be have covid or not have covid and they were all in schools and they could get teachers sick and all of that right so schools were shut down but kids were still wearing masks if you went to school as my kids do you had to wear a mask all day all of that we got to let them out because no, now we're going to be in a position in which people who are not at risk of getting sick or dying or transmitting the disease are going to be the last people who are going to be walking around. In joking terms, there was you know a hilarious bit in um, the uh, Christopher Guest you know semi improv comedy movie A Mighty Wind, which is about you know a, a folk concert 
where the promoter of the concert is shown as a kid. He was a cellist, and his mother was very concerned with his safety. So, no, he was, you know, he was in a, yeah, he was a cellist in the school orchestra, and they show him playing, and he's got a helmet on because, you know, you don't know what could happen. So, you know, um, this is the equivalent of that. We are, this we are, is why I stick with the castigate thing, where I think we should heap all the opprobrium we can on these people, because the logic of the idea that you as a fully vaccinated person need to mask for fear of unvaccinated people is precisely what is going to keep children masked forever, because school administrators and teachers who have used their leverage in the most odious of fashions over the course of this pandemic will use children's lack of vaccination, can't get vaccinated because there is no approved vaccine for young children, will use that to justify any and all restrictions on schools in order to maintain this labor dispute that they have ongoing with the various states in which they're operating. So they will hold children hostage based on this logic. It's pernicious and it needs to be exposed as being insane and and and, and utilitarian on the, per- okay. on the per- people who are advocating it. Okay, anybody who is a parent uh, over the last, uh, you know, 20 years knows about the squeaky wheel problem in 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 conversations relating to kids in preschool and school and playgroups and all of that. It started very rationally in relation to the question of whether or not kids who can be severely allergic to certain things, whether just as a matter of safety, you should say, you know what, no nuts in school because you know, most kids are fine, but one kid with a really serious anaphylactic response could up and die. So if you could just not let them bring in a peanut butter sandwich, that would be really great. You know, that's just the easiest way to handle it. There are 10,000 other choices. Do that. That's fine. Then it turns into, why aren't you serving salad to the, you know, at, at lunch in first grade? There should be salad. You're giving them fatty foods. That's not healthy. What about, why aren't you, why don't you give them water? They should be drinking water, not juice and not anything else because, you know, that's bad for their teeth. And I don't want my kid. My kid only drinks water. And if you let the other kids drink orange juice, my kids are going to want orange juice. That's not fair. And so that thing that begins with a kernel root of 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 sensible caution then turns into a world in which people attempt to control the environment of everybody else so that their ideological parenting style is reinforced by the overall group. And that is what is going to go on now with masking. And this is going to be a real challenge and a real test of how deranged our society has become if those people get to control what my kid does in relation to something that is not going to make him sick and he and in which he is not going to have the power to make someone else sick. Christine, you you you've been through this experience also. Yes, I mean I think this is actually why I agree with Noah that the people who are continuing to not follow the science and insist on wearing masks after they're vaccinated should be kind of pretty strongly castigated. I, I like that word because it's a combination of shaming and scolding that is is uh, very firm. And every time, I mean, look, if I was a parent in Chicago right now, I'd be pretty annoyed because the mayor of Chicago is continuing to wear her mask, has publicly stated, "Oh, you know, we, I'm just going to keep it on. It makes me feel safe." This is a person who's going to who's who makes decisions about whether or not schools will be open and whether kids will be wearing masks all day. That If I were a parent, I'd be furious. She's modeling behavior that is anti-scientific and she's doing it because it makes her feel better. And we've all seen this with teachers and teachers unions this year. After the scientific evidence was clear that they could safely return to the classroom, even pre-vaccination, they didn't feel safe. So this this elevation of how groups of people's feelings should trump the actual facts on the ground with the science Yes, we had to be cautious at the beginning. There's a lot we didn't know. We know a lot now, and we certainly know what vaccination has has done in terms of the risk level. So I think, I mean, the state of Massachusetts, the governor has just announced no masks for the kids outdoors. State by state, this needs to happen. If uh, the, the federal government has spoken... Kids do not need to be masked. They really never needed to be masked. And in Europe, um, particularly in European schools, they never were. So yes, parents have to fight back. But if your elected officials are literally, you know, have a have a security blanket of a mask and are and are kind of proudly demonstrating that, what what do you do? 
my illustrious governor in the state of New Jersey is admirably honest about this when he spent the whole weekend retweeting unions who were saying this is going to hurt our members. Our members are going to die as a result of this. These are constitu- This is constituency maintenance. This is not public health policy. I mean, the only thing I think that, that um, could um, sort of sway uh, uh, public opinion, you know, the, 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 as a matter of those who, who are not connected to the teachers unions, but who are but whose fears they play, play upon is what if numbers, daily death numbers and daily inf- infection rates just get so low that it's that these crazy um, precautions just don't even resonate with with the neurotics anymore. Right. Well, what, what, what is the number that Fauci put on this classically? Right. It was 10,000 10, cases. Right. Nationally. Yeah. Nationally. Okay, so I granted it was a Sunday. These numbers are weird and all of that. We were at 16,000 cases last Sunday. Now, it's not, you know, so we're back up in the You know how many people there are in this country? How many? 16,000 people out of 330 million? We got 200 cases in my state. Nine million people live there. You can't find someone who has COVID. And if they do, they're vaccinated and they're not getting tested because it doesn't affect them. Right. And there, I will say this, there are two competing things. Ron Klain, the White House Chief of Staff, wants to declare victory over the virus. That is his bias. He is now moving every time he can tweet something out that says hospitalizations are down, cases are down, da-da-da. He wants to be able to have Biden give a speech in June that says, Dad gummit, we did it. We did it. And you know what? I said July 4th. Everybody, don't worry. It's not just small groups now. Everybody go and let's have parades everywhere. What He wants to be able to do that. That's a good thing that he wants to be able to do that because, once again, uh, look at look at what his health, look at what they did to him last week. Look at what happened last week. Like there was a, there was a, there was a, a, a you know, a landslide, a moment, a, a hinge moment in sort of modern American history. And it was, yeah, okay, don't wear masks inside anymore. Okay, but I think that, that maybe Ron Klain wants it, but there are a lot of constituent groups, particularly the unions, who do not want this to happen yet yeah, because they, they are will. negotiating their contracts this summer. So he can't, any declaration of victory from the top down actually undermines their ability to keep teachers at home for as long as possible and with as much flexibility as possible. Yeah, but, you know, look. And they're trying to rewrite what they did for the past year. I just have to put that out there. Randy Weingarten and the teachers unions have spent the last week and a half with a PR blitz trying to rewrite history and no American should buy it. It is a lie. It is an attempt at disinformation. It is absolutely appalling. And I hope every, not just parents, every American, because these kids who go through these schools will one day have to run this country. It is appalling. They've lost an entire year of their lives. Yeah. Guys. You know, the way we all use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, but security tools, alas, have mostly stayed the same. That's why I want to talk to you about Aura. Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, finances, and devices, and more, all in one easy-to-use app. Aura provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information, and tech safe from online threats. It's all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name. Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all your online information and devices with one simple subscription. With an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. And right now, Aura is offering our listeners early access and three free months when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to Aura.com slash commentary to get access before everyone else and three months for free. That's AURA.com slash commentary um interesting uh interesting little nugget uh in relating in relation to the u.s government and its continuing fascinating behavior 
when it comes to the um, conflict between uh, Israel and Hamas and Gaza. Uh, uh, on Sunday, I believe, uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he wanted to see, he had not been provided with intelligence that supported or explained the Israeli um the explosion of the building in Gaza that housed the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and other uh, media places that is- Israeli uh, sources had said had Hamas intelligence assets in the building. Uh, yesterday or this morning or something, he kind of said that he had now seen the intelligence, couldn't talk about the intelligence, but he'd now seen the intelligence, which... Well, Blinken's statement followed a report by the Jerusalem Post, which said that Israeli officials had provided this intelligence directly to the President of the United States in a principal's call between Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu. Right, which explains why, in spite of the fact that you really do get the sense that in the Democratic Party is now become dangerous for people to express open support for the Israeli uh, defensive action here against uh, Hamas rockets. Uh, We have uh, a story in, I think, Politico, I think, I can't remember, either National Journal or Politico, uh, in which a Democratic congressman who might be expected to have written a resolution of support for Israel's action says it's not worth it because we don't need a bloody fight in the conference over this. That would actually not be helpful. And there would be a fight in the democratic caucus, uh, over passing such a resolution. Um, and yet there's Joe Biden. And so he said something yesterday that immediately alarmed pro-Israel advocates where he said he would like to see a ceasefire, but he said he would like to see a ceasefire. So would I, you know, I don't want my sister to have to go into her stairwell six times a day or people to go into bomb shelters or children to be sobbing um, as, as, as rockers. I would love there to be a ceasefire. But he also reaffirmed Israel's right to defend itself. So we are now a week into this. And I just, as unbelievably critical as I am of the Biden administration and you know, as I as I told you yesterday, we have articles at, coming out about Biden's madness in relation to the to the patents. We have Noah's article coming out in the magazine about Biden as culture warrior. In this case, Biden is not is following the science. They know what is going on between Israel and Hamas, and Biden is not playing the game that John Kerry, his dear friend, when he was Secretary of State, played in 2014. Uh, making it very clear that he was getting more and more irritated with Israel's behavior. That could change. It could change on a dime. They are preventing Security Council resolutions condemning Israel from getting to the to the Security Council floor. Um, interesting things are going on here uh, that suggest that um, that the that the case for Israel's defensive behavior is open and shut as long as you are not an ignorant or disgusting lunatic. Two, two points on that. I read that I don't know how much stock to put into this, but I read um, that there are some subtle diplomatic signals being sent by the Biden administration. For example, the waiting to the very last minute to, to block one of those resolutions, which is sending an almost, almost unnoticeable signal of the declining patience with Israel's actions from this administration. And everybody wants to see a ceasefire. So that's probably true enough. But and this is a point I made on on TV this morning is that Democrats risk, you know, succumbing to the Twitterification of discourse because I haven't seen a single poll of recently of this conflict that suggests that there is not there are more Democrats who don't support Israel in this conflict and are more sympathetic towards Israel. You wouldn't know it from the discourse. Now, that's changing. Broad swaths of the Democratic electorate are more sympathetic towards the Palestinian cause than they have been in decades because the the Democratic discourse is becoming more progressive. But at the moment, a plurality of Democrats support Israel in this cause. And Joe Biden has that as cover, but they're all being very cautious about it because the people who don't are loud about it. I mean, look, here's the craziness. So the New York Times headline this morning is humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza. You know, as conflict enters second week or something like that. 
Israel would not drop a single bomb on Gaza if the rockets weren't flying. Israel is not, according to the laws of war, the history of warfare, anything like that, Israel is not morally or in international law terms responsible for a single thing that is happening in Gaza. The rockets don't fly. Israel doesn't bomb. It's that simple. I'm going to make the third day in a row. I'm going to say Israel has Iron Dome, as Yair Rosenberg said. So does Gaza. Gaza's Iron Dome is don't fire rockets at Israel. The humanitarian catastrophe is over if they stop firing the rockets at Israel. Israel is not bombing Gaza for its health. No, it is not bombing Gaza because Bibi Netanyahu wants to remain prime minister. No, it is not bombing Gaza because it wants to have more rockets hit it so that its people have to go into bomb shelters and ordinary commerce and the ordinary life that they just got back because the vaccination campaign was so brilliantly successful has been entirely interrupted. They do not want this. Hamas wants this. Iran wants this. That is, it is so inarguably the case, what I am saying, that you actually have to be somebody who believes at root that what Hamas is doing is justified to blame Israel for this. In other words, Hamas is justified because Israel's behavior toward the Palestinians since 1948 is so spectacularly unjust that any response fundamentally is explicable and defensible or can be explained away. What is finding purchase online and in social media, on Twitter, um, what has been successful? And by successful, I, I don't mean it's making any sort of good point, but but it is catching fire, is the Black Lives Matterization of the Palestinian cause. Um, this is increasing. This is ramping up. They're making wild connections um, between, you know, the Palestinians and, and African-Americans in, in, the, in the U.S. Um, the thing about this is, though, that from a foreign policy perspective, that's just as a framework, that's a non-starter. I mean, no one making U.S. policy, that's of no use to, to anyone. There's nothing you can no, it's do an, with that. It's an admission of abject ignorance right. because you're using a heuristic to navigate an issue you don't quite understand. Precisely. I understand this. Also, yeah. Therefore, I'm, that's, I'm going to impose those conditions on that situation, which is entirely distinct, only so I can have a framework to figure out how this, what's going on here. It is even more disgusting than that, because here is the idea. This is like Black Lives Matter. If you are like Black Lives Matter, you support the Palestinians. 51% of Israelis are Sephardic Jews. Do you know where Sephardic Jews come from? North Africa. Do you know how long Sephardic Jews have lived in North Africa? Somewhere between, or lived in North Africa, Somewhere between 500 and 2,000 years. Do you know why Israeli Jews had to leave North Africa to go to Israel? Because in 1948, they came under immense civil uh, persecution after the creation of the State of Israel. And in the year 1950 alone, 850,000 Jews had to flee from Iraq and Yemen and uh, and Iran and other places and find uh, a safe haven in Israel, which is why Israel was created, right, as a refuge for Jews. And there is a whole fantasy that was created as a refuge for Jews because of the Holocaust. And as of now, in 2021, the majority of the population of the state of Israel was in no threat from the Holocaust. Was not we're not go we're not in being transported to Auschwitz or the concentration camps. That is not what was going on. They are brown. Many of them are brown and black. They are not Europeans. Ashkenazic Jews are Europeans. They are Africans. They're from Asia Minor. I, I have to read an astounding sentence from the New York Times on uh, discussing this matter about the, exactly what we're talking about, this sort of turning this into a, the, the Israel-Palestinian um, situation into a Black Lives Matter cause. Uh, from today's New York Times, I'll, uh, he, here's the sentence. They, 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 they write all about what we're saying, and then, they, then there's this. 
To be sure, the connections existed long before this month. Malcolm X visited Gaza in 1964 when it belonged to Egypt, and the militant wing of the civil rights movement he represented harshly criticized Israel over its Palestinian policies. The Nation of Islam did not represent the civil rights movement. It didn't harshly criticize Israel. It was birthed as a as the as a a, a reification of an anti-Semitic theory about the world. That's the, right. The abject ignorance of the people promoting these things is is what's mind blowing. And the to be sure paragraph mm-hmm. is as a journalistic trope is is something that you just throw out there to dismiss your critics, to just get your critics contentions out there and then you know just destroy them in the subsequent paragraphs but this one is is designed to advance this this notion i was just going to say one other point to why we're seeing this happen now in a way that we haven't in in uh, like you know previous intifada and whatnot is that i feel like that there used to be this like sort of all war is evil kind of uh, ethos among a lot of the pro-palestinians it was like it's terrible it's a humanitarian crisis israel is such a militaristic society it's just awful very pro-peace which uh, of course they were not but but the problem is that when, as as we've said during this past week, as rockets are raining down from a terrorist organization on people who are, you know, just going about their daily lives, it's hard to argue that it's well, we're all just so peaceful. This gives them a wedge into our, a moral, what they see as a moral high ground because they make it about race. If you can make it about race, then you actually need to respond. You need to, you know, there've been protests all over this country about this. We've been having them in DC and elsewhere in London. There were horrible, horrible footage of like the most egregious anti-Semitic rantings from pro-Palestinian, uh, uh, you know, uh, protesters who were, by the way, arrested um, for some of the things that they were saying, like inciting violence. So, but I feel like it gives them, they think it gives them a moral high ground and it's a better argument to make than we're just trying to be peaceful here and it's Israel who's the aggressor. It's clearly, I, I feel like at least for the American domestic defenders of the Palestinians, that's what they're, that's why they do it because it's, it's for them ideologically a more uh, comfortable argument to make. Look, we have, there are three different strands here. Okay, one is... Uh, are the Palestinians mistreated by 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 Israel? The second is, are you know, is Israel an apartheid state for its treatment of the Palestinians? And the third is, uh, is the fact that a terrorist group called Hamas runs Gaza that is uh, explicable and defensible somehow? Um, the apartheid state line is a peculiar one because. Uh, on the one hand, you're, you're not an apartheid state and an occupying state. If you're not, if you want to claim that Israel is an occupier, that's a colonialist matter. Interestingly, Israel anti-occupied Gaza in 2005, which is why it has 30,000 rockets. It is a it is a Juden-Rhein Israeli-free territory that no, not a Jew a Jew except Peter Beinart. Uh, has wandered around since 2000, Peter Beinart, and if not now, when, and whatever turncoat slimy capos are, are wandering around Gaza. Um, so uh, it's not occupied Gaza, whatever. So you can claim that it's an occupying power and therefore it's a colonialist thing. It's not an apartheid power because these aren't citizens of the country who are given limited rights. You could then claim that maybe there's something relating to the to the um to the rights or liberties or whatever of Israeli citizens who are Arabs except they have all civil rights what they don't have is political power uh and so the political power is a is a you know is is a is a problem um and then the you have this question watch, just yes. to dismantle the apartheid argument a little more comprehensively the human rights watch um, declaration in April that made a lot of headway and, and is now being repeated, uh, you know, just uncritically by a whole lot of people in the entertainment sphere. You saw Stephen Colbert say this, or no, I'm sorry, John Oliver say this the other day about how this is un- unquestionably an apartheid state. Ali Veshi on MSNBC, it's clearly an apartheid state, period. No argumentation with this. It's predicated on right of return. Um, and, and a variety of other, you know, very indefensible claims, but mostly on right of return and the notion that these uh, restrictive immigration policies are uh, constitute apartheid. 
um, which is you know indefensible insofar as it's a restrictive immigration regime, which is not really all that distinct from many other advanced democracies, according to NGO Watch and this organization Camera, which did a very good rebuttal of this sort of thing. That um, this is this is is di- different, not in kind, but in the nature of the way it's discussed, and you know the. It effectively constitutes a double standard, a discriminatory double standard, where we treat Israel differently than other advanced democracies, which is also the International uh, Holocaust Remembrance Association's working definition of anti-Semitism, that applying a a double standard to Israel that is not applied to any other uh, advanced nation on earth. Okay, let's talk about the right of return for five seconds, and then I got to do another ad. But here's the right of return story. So according to the right of return... Uh, uh, Arabs, Palestinian Arabs who lived in, in mandatory Palestine before the War of Independence, who fled uh, as the War of Independence and went to the West Bank and Jordan uh, largely, um, uh, fled because of the war, uh, have the right to return and, and, and take their property back and become citizens of the state. That is the theory of the right of return. Okay, so... In 1876, the Jewish community uh, in in the you know in in Ottoman controlled uh, Palestine purchased a neighborhood, purchased an area where they believe they believed the tomb of Shimon Hatzadik was present, um, and uh, owned it. Uh, the Jewish community until 1948 and built houses there until 1948 when the War of Independence happened. When you'll remember, all these Arabs fled to the West Bank, right? But in that same war, Jordan seized control of East Jerusalem. And this neighborhood, which you now know in the news as Sheikh Jarrah, the houses that were there were then taken over by Palestinian Arabs who moved into them and have resided in them ever since. Uh the legal title and deed to these houses is owned, was owned by the Jewish, by this group, this Jewish community in mandatory Palestine that, that, that deed has since been sold to various other people over time. Um, If you believe in the right of return, Palestinians have no right to be living in those houses. Legal title to that property is held by Jews uh, this entire ginned up thing that has now exploded into this war is over the notion that it is illegitimate for Jews to claim property over which they had deed and title. Gee, what a double standard. Huh? Okay, let's talk about stamps. And the assumption that Israeli courts treat um, Arab uh, citizens differently which is, again, an assumption that is predicated only on prejudice. It is not supported at all by the record. And the people who advocate it are giving voice to a prejudicial assumption freely and clearly and having no no uh, no understanding of what they're doing. They say, well, of course Palestinians can't get a fair shake in the independent Israeli judiciary. Why would they? I wouldn't. That's you. That's you being a jerk. Right. Look, Noah, are you still going to the post office? Are you? Are you still paying full price for postage, Abe? Well, thanks to Stamps.com, you don't have to anymore. Mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages, pay less, a lot less, with discounted rates from the U.S. Postal Service, UPS, and more. Stamps.com saves businesses thousands of hours and tons of money every year by bringing the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. Maybe you're a small office sending invoices. Maybe you got an Etsy shop, you're shipping out orders, or you're just navigating our hybrid work life, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. No matter over 1 million businesses, choose Stamps.com for their mailing and shipping. All you got to do is use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. You get discounts up to 40% off post office rates and up to 66% off U.S. UPS shipping rates. And Stamps.com is a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. So stop wasting time going to the post office and use Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code commentary, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com. 
click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in commentary. That's stamps.com, promo code commentary. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Uh, so, uh, so I mentioned no in that ad and I mentioned A, but I did not mention uh, Christine. That's okay. So, Christine, go to stamps.com. I will. Can I just say one other thing about uh, the media's role in a lot of the discussion of of the ongoing conflict in in, uh, Gaza? Every uh, every time you read a story about it, note how they what the lead, as we call it, is of that story. What how they frame the beginning of the story to get you to think a certain way about it. it the Washington, if it's the Washington Post, if it's the BBC, if it's the New York Times, it will start with Israel attacks Gaza. Israel is you know bombing Gaza. It will always begin with Israel as the aggressor in these situations, and that's deliberate, and that is something that. I think people often overlook and, but if it accumulates over time, if all of your media outlets are saying the same thing, it's understandable, although disastrous in terms of uh, comprehension of the situation that people start to think, Oh, Israel's the aggressor. I mean, they, they will literally frame it as a David and Goliath where Israel is the Goliath. So be aware when you're reading about this, if you're someone who hasn't followed these issues closely over the years of how it's being framed in the media, because that is a deliberate choice to make Israel uh, the bad guy. 35 years ago, the first intifada started. That was an uprising uh, of, of, of Palestinians on the West Bank uh, against uh, when Israel was a fully occupying power in the West Bank. And it was structured as a David versus Goliath thing. Why? Because they were an occupied people and they didn't have access to heavy weaponry and stuff like that. And so they were throwing rocks, right? The way David, you know, used a slingshot to hit Goliath. So it's a David versus Goliath, very brilliantly conceived way of dealing with this. These are not rocks. These are missiles. And as I keep saying, if it weren't for Iron Dome, the level of destruction that would have would would be that would be uh, you know hitting uh, this very concentrated population in Israel, which is a, which is the size, you know, m- much of Israel is the size of Rhode Island. So, you know, and 3,000, 3,500 rockets have been fired. 90% of them have been intercepted by the anti-missile system. And as I keep saying, if it weren't for Iron Dome, A, there would have been immense destruction, and B, it's likely that there would be a ground war in which tens of thousands of people would die, Israelis and Palestinians in Gaza alike. So uh, what do you want? Is that what you want? You want to know what a humanitarian catastrophe looks like? Uh, Gaza is basically a giant city. Street, street by street, avenue by avenue combat in a, in a, in a, in a heavily populated area. That's a humanitarian catastrophe. And with that, we will bid you adieu till tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.